Thank you so much. We're taking our Bibles and we're headed to Judges. Let's talk about a hero, one who fought for his country. We're talking in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6, if you join me there this morning. Judges 6, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, as was mentioned in one of the testimonies, we have been going through the book of Judges and we're talking about different individuals. Today we come to a beginning of a story that's going to take us a couple, two, three weeks, about one of those judges. His name is Gideon. You've all heard of him, but we're going to explore his life a little bit more. As we go through the past it's Judges 6, 7, 8, gives his story. We are going to this morning focus in on chapter 6, and as we talk about it, just to follow through, to get an outline, to get a flow of the story, I'm just going to give you some, some simple outline. One is the condition of Israel, and number two is the call of Gideon. That's as far as we're going to get this morning. The condition of Israel is described in Judges chapter 6. As we open up the beginning of this portion of this study, there's a cycle that happens in the book of Judges that keeps on repeating itself. It goes like this this. The Jews rebel against God. Then they're reproved by Canaanites, by other enemies of their nation that come, defeat them in battle, and then put taxation, put them under tribute for a period of years or decades. Then those people repent. They call upon the Lord and they say, please forgive us. We've really blown it. So God gives them a rescue. A judge. Somebody who isn't like the judges that we're talking about, but a judge who comes normally like a military leader and he leads them to battle or he tries to do on his own like some of them do. They have their own fight against the enemies to break the backbone of the enemy. And then there's a period of rest that takes place. Well, our story begins where there was a judge that we talked about last week. It was one of the, the only female judge. Her name was Deborah. She led through the help of her appointee Barak into a time of battle against the enemy. And Israel experiences 40 years of rest. Then they start rebelling again. We read about that rebellion in Judges chapter 6 and verse 1, where it says very simply, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We could put in there, again, God gives a reproof. This time the reproof is described in the next phrase. The Lord delivered them into the hand of the Midianites seven years. And you read down in verse 2, a little bit further about that deliverance. The hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made them, made them the dens, which are the mountains, the caves, and the strongholds. And so it was that Israel had sown the the Midianites would come up, and the Amalekites, and the children of the east, even they came up against them, and they would encamp against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth till they came unto Gaza, that is the entire region. They left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For they came up with their cattle, their tents, they came by as grasshoppers for their multitude, for they both... For both they and their camels were without number. They entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel as we go on. Now here's the reproof. It's very simple. I've already read it. It's different than the other previous engagements of the enemies who came into the land. This time the invaders don't occupy the land. They come. They go at harvest season. This time when they come, they, they, they take over the entire region of what we would call Israel. All the way down to Gaza. And they take everything. They come, they plunder, they come in great amounts through the region and they take whatever goods to the point that the Jews are living in dens, they're living in caves. And the Hebrew has the idea they are greatly, greatly impoverished. It's a horrible time that lasts for seven different harvest seasons. The Jews respond. They repent. They call upon the name of the Lord, verse 7. They say, God forgive us. It came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites. And then it goes on. They pray and they say, God, help us, deliver us. And God starts to send the rescue. In verse 7, he does the rescue different than what he's done previous four judges. What he does this time is he sends a prophet. The first phase of the rescue. There's a man, he's not given a name. He comes and he foretells, or he, foretell, he speaks, foretells what's been going on. He's called a prophet, not a warrior. And as he comes and he talks... He tells them the truth. Now I remind you that in the Bible days of the Old Testament, the prophets weren't necessarily future tellers. They could be forth tellers. They could be doing what I'm doing right now. Telling the word of God. Speaking the word of God. Explaining the word of God. That's a forth teller, not a foreteller. And so this man, his prophet, his job as a prophet is to forth tell, to explain why are the problems happening. And he tells them very simply something that they have forgotten. He says to them, 
them, that in verse 8, the Lord sent the prophet, and he said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you. I drave them out before you. And he says, And gave you the land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. What an epitaph. What a summary of these people. That he says, the problems that you're facing, they're not a result of me doing something wrong. They're not a result of God forsaking you. It's not a result of of all of a sudden God abandoning his people. It's because you have disobeyed. I warned you. I told you. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. I will chasten you. And so in their case, they were having these problems. And he is saying, why? Basically like the parent, why don't you learn? Why don't you learn from my discipline. Now it's easy for you and me to cast stones back through history and peg the Jews on the noggin. And to say, how could they not learn? Especially after he says, I've given you, I've delivered you, I've blessed you. I've, I've taken you out of bondage and I, and I paid for this and I, and with, my, with my answered prayers and I blessed you so abundantly. And you repented. And then you went right back into what you got yourself into trouble. Before we, we condemn them, we have to ask ourselves, how often are we like them? How often does it happen? You lose your temper, you create a problem. You have a conflict now that you created in the home or at work. You say, God, please help me through this problem. I've, I've, I've almost ruined a friendship. Rescue the friendship. Rescue my job because I've lost my temper and I could lose my job. Please spare me the difficulty. Spare me the conflicts that I've created. God spares you. He answers it. And you go out and lose your temper again. How often does it happen? That somebody puts their job in jeopardy by attitude, by actions. And they say, oh God, please, this would be so embarrassing. It would ruin my reputation. And God spares you from that, that assault of losing the job, that consequence. And then a few weeks, months later, you're right back to the same thing. How often does it happen that somebody comes to worship and they say, oh, I've been promiscuous. God, please don't let me be pregnant. Don't let me be pregnant. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And then all of a sudden, weeks later, after the the threat is gone, they're out doing the same thing. Or we have the gossip that ruins friendships. Oh God, don't let this friendship be ruined. And then when the crisis passes, we go back to the same stuff. There's so many cases that it happens. My marriage is in jeopardy. We've had such a big fight. Oh God, please spare my marriage. And you get through the crises. Three months later, you got another big argument. How often does it happen? You lose your temper towards the kids. You scream, you yell, you carry on. They slam the door. They go out and you say, oh God, please help us to restore this. And you have to go through the situation, get it all restored. And it's calmed down and you got it to where you're talking with your kids again. And they're talking with you and they're, they're interacting. And two months later, you lose your temper again and you scream and you yell and they slam the door and out we go. Before we cast too many stones back through the times... We've got to pause and say, how often do we get delivered? Do we get grace bestowed upon us? How often does God deliver us from our own consequences of our sin? And then we repeat the same sin. I was listening to a message this last couple of weeks, and it's a fellow who preaches down south, down in the Atlanta region. His name is Richard Farmer. And he's telling the story about when he graduated from college. He knew God wanted him to be in the ministry. He knew God wanted, was directing. And so he finished his college degree, and he was going to go to seminary, but he was going to work a little bit of time so he could save money, pay off the debts, and then for a year or so, uh, take care of that, save some, and then in, a, in that next year or the year after, go into seminary. And he said he had his plans. His job that he was going to work for was for the very university, Christian university he graduated from. So he wasn't going to get a whole lot of money and salary. But they would give him room and board and he thought he could make it and that type of thing. Now this is years ago. Years ago, and some of you remember this, that when we graduated from college, we would get at that time all kinds of offers for credit cards. Because now you're a college graduate. Now you're going to make big bucks. And so Farmer says that he got all kinds of these, these offers of, you know, here's a credit card and you can have it and you won't have to pay anything for the first few months as far as fees, all those good things. So he took them up on one of those offers. And he said he took this one credit card, he opened it up, and he said it was a fantastic credit card. He could go to the store, buy things, and not have to pay for a while. 
And so he said he got into this routine that he started buying and buying and buying and not thinking that there would be payday someday. And so he got this bill all going. He's not making much money. He's only making like $1,500 a month, you know, because of room and board and things like that. And he said he got the bill one day and he said, ooh, $2,000. And that credit card at that time, they would charge you the entire amount of interest month after month until you paid down the entire bill of what you purchased that in a particular month. So basically you have to pay it all off. And so he said, I don't have $2,000. I don't even make that much a month. What am I going to do? Then he thought, my grandfather. My grandfather was a factory worker. He did really good. He saved money. He, I'll go and see if Grandpa will help me out. So he went to Grandpa and he said, hey, Grandpa, I've got myself in a financial bind. He explained to Grandpa what he had done, that he had overextended himself. He bought too many things on the credit card. And he says, Grandpa, can you loan me $2,000? And here's what I'll do. I'll give you 10 checks that are going to be dated for the first of the next 10 months, $200 each time, and we'll pay it off that way. You hold the checks, I'll make sure the money is in, and I'll pay you off. And Grandpa said, absolutely no interest, this is the way to do it. So Farmer did it, month by month by month, made sure the money was there, it was paid off, and in 10 months, his debt is done. He said, I felt such a relief. It was so great. Grandpa was happy, I was happy. And he said, then I, about three months later, I went in the store, saw something that I really wanted. And remembered, I've got money in my pocket called a plastic credit card. He said, so I bought it on credit. And then I saw something else. And I bought another one. And I bought this and I bought that. He said, within four weeks, I was up to $1,700 in debt again on credit card. Well, Grandpa, okay, went back to Grandpa and said, Grandpa, can you help me out? I need some money. Can you loan me like you did before? And Grandpa said, well, tell me why you're in debt. Well, what happened, Grandpa, is I saw this, I saw that, I bought these things, and I've got about $1,700 to pay, and if, I'll give you, I've even written the checks out already, you know, to post-date the checks, and his grandpa said, you know, son, I love you, I love you immensely, but this time I'm going to say no. Grandpa, I really love you, that's why I'm saying no. Because if I don't say no, you're never going to learn. He said it was the best, sweetest refusal he's ever had that made a difference for his life. God is saying to the Israelites, no, 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 and they keep on going back. Again, before we are too critical, we have to look in the mirror and say, do we do the same thing? That's their condition. That's their situation. The prophet is saying you are facing stuff because you haven't obeyed my voice. And they have to learn from that. And so God's going to bless them. He's going to be gracious to them. He's going to answer, but he wants them to learn. He wants us to learn as well. We need to respond to the word. So God, in answer, in grace to him, says, okay, I've sent you the prophet to give you the message. Now I'm going to send you the deliverer. And he sends Gideon. This is the call of Gideon. It starts in verse 11. Where you start getting the story, it says, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which is in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all the miracles which our fathers used to tell us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. He's delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this your might, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Oh, my Lord, wherewithal shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is the poorest in Manasseh. I'm the least or the youngest in my father's house. The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto the angel, If now I have found grace in your sight, then show me a sign that you talk with me. Don't depart, I pray you, until I come again and bring forth my present and my meal and set it before you. And the angel of the Lord said, I will tarry until you come again. Gideon went and made ready a kid, and unleavened cakes, and ephah of flour, and flesh he had put in a basket. And he put forth broth in a pot and brought it to him, that angel of the Lord that sat under the oak, and presented it. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the flesh, the unleavened cakes, lay them out on the rock, pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh, the unleavened cakes, and there arose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord 
disappeared. Wow, what's all going on in this story? There's a lot of details that are really cool that we need to just stop and explore for a second. In talking about the call of Gideon, let's make this observation. The call of Gideon comes from the Lord himself. It's a direct visitation by the Lord God Almighty. Jesus Christ, that is. What happens here is you read in verse 11, there came an angel of the Lord. You read in verse 12, the angel of the Lord spoke to him. But watch how we are given identification who the angel of the Lord is. It says further on, the Lord capital L-O-R-D, looked and spoke unto him. It says in verse 16, the Lord said, I will be with you. This angel of the Lord is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He isn't in the full physical form that he was birthed with, but he's come in a spirit form, presented himself, and so Gideon is talking to God. He's talking to Jesus Christ, who is explained to him he has a job for him to do. I want you to catch something else about this call that comes. It comes at the right time of the year. It comes at just the same time that the Midianites are ready to come and attack. Remember, we've already read in verse 3 and 4, they come every harvest season. What's Gideon doing? At this very moment, Gideon is threshing the wheat. It means we're in harvest season. It means that we're at the time of the year that the Midianites are coming around the corner. They need a deliverer. I'm raising you up. It's time. I'm sending you at the right time. And God is saying, I'm picking the right man. Now that leads me to a third thought that's very important. Gideon is a very ordinary guy. Gideon is not like you. You have special gifts, special talents. You have amazing skill sets. Gideon would not be like most of you. Gideon would be the normal Joe. He'd be the average guy. He'd be the person that most of us would overlook when we're looking for somebody to lead, somebody to teach, somebody to to be the, the one to rally people. We wouldn't pick Gideon. There's a whole lot of things about Gideon that stand out about here in this passage that show us he's just the normal type of guy. He's the average student. He's the average athlete. He's kind of average at best, maybe below average. And yet God uses him. Now let me point out what I mean by that. He's doing regular type of work. He's not doing something phenomenal. He's not doing something that is exceptional. He's out taking care of the family stuff. He's working his dad's fields. He's out there threshing the wheat. He's doing a job that the workers would do. Why? He's just a regular type of guy. He's not saying, I'm the boss and I'm telling the servants what to do. He's out there by himself threshing the wheat, doing a normal day's work. Something else that stands out, he has regular problems like the rest of us. He's a regular kind of an individual who's facing day-in, day-out problems. His day-in and day-out problems start with where they're living. They live in what's literally called Ophrah, the Dust Bowl. They live in an area that's not really fruitful, not really profitable. They don't have the richest of all the lands. And he says that we are there taking care of the crops, and he's hiding in a wine press. And that we'll explain in a second. But what that shows us is that he is getting ready for the invasion. He's getting attacked. He's got problems like everybody else has problems. His family's not exempt. His family isn't going to be the ones who get away with anything from the Midianites. They're going to lose their crops. And so he's harvesting the crops and he's doing it in such a way that he can protect his crops. He's doing it in what we would call a wine press. Now the pictures I'm showing you are not a wine press. They are the normal, typical threshing floor. This is the way they would normally do it back in his day. They would have an elevated spot, maybe two or three steps up like this. This would be the field, and they would do it right next to the field. Maybe it would just be a hillside there. And then they would have an area where it would be packed down, whether they do it with dirt or they do it with stone, or at times they would lay wood over this area. And then what the farmer would do is he would bring that which is harvested and throw that wheat, throw the oats, throw it there, and he would typically take a couple oxen and tie a flat board, sled type thing, on behind the oxen, and he would stand on it. And he'd have the oxen go around and around this threshing floor, pulling this, this board over it to thresh, to break up the grain from, from the uh, husk and everything else. And then what they would do is they would throw it up in the air and let the breeze blow away that which is the residue. And so they would work, and they would prefer to have an elevated area because they need the breeze. They need to blow it away. That's not where Gideon is working. Gideon is not in an elevated place. He's in a depressed place physically. He is in what is described here as a wine press. This is one of the ancient wine presses. It's usually down in the ground, and it's an area of vat that they would work so that the grace could be put in and things would come down this way, and it would be hidden. It would be not seen by others because it would be in the depression. 
Gideon is working that area. He is doing farming somewhat backwards, but there's a reason why he's doing it. And he's working very hard in this depressed area. He is doing it for one reason. Do you remember what it is? Hello? Yeah, he's hiding. He's hiding out. It says in the text that he's a type of person that has a lot of growing to do. He is down here in the the wine press because he's fearful of the Midianites. He is not this one that is saying, revolution, join me, let's go out, let's beat him. He's not one who is making you know, statements down at Philadelphia, down at the, you know, the hall and calling people together to, to go against the British. He's not doing that. In fact, he is just trying to survive, keep his head above water, trying to get family food, trying to survive and keep some of the crops for themselves. He is here in this wine press because he's fearful. God picks fearful people to be used? Yep, he really does. And Gideon here has a fear of the Midianites. And what's ironic about the whole story, God says, you mighty man of valor, you outstanding courageous person. Was it sarcasm? Was God just saying, wow, you impressed me with all your bravado. You're hiding out in a wine press. I don't think it's a cynicism. I don't think it's sarcasm. I think God is calling him a mighty man of valor because God knows what he can become, not what he is. In fact, doesn't God do this frequently? Doesn't God see us for what we will become Not always what we are. Abram. I'm going to call you Abraham. You're going to become the father of many nations. He calls him that when he doesn't even have a child yet. But he knows the potential. When God talks about uh, Jacob and he calls him Israel. Jacob the deceiver. All of a sudden he's called the prince. Why? Not because of what he is, but what he can become. Our most famous and well-known individual, Simon is going to be called Peter, a rock, a solid person. You and I would look and say, Peter, solid like a rock? Really? One minute, I'm going to die for you. A few hours later, I don't know the guy. Hey, should I give you the real illustration? Should I give you the ultimate illustration of what God calls you and me? Not of what we are, but what we become. How many different passages of scriptures call us saint? Holy one. Here, let me see if this fits, if this really fits you. Just for fun, turn to the person next to you and say, my name is Saint whatever your name is. Go ahead, do it, do it. Introduce yourself. I am Saint Barb. Does it, does it feel natural? Does it make you feel, uh... Catholic. (laughs) It's not normal to us. We don't walk around and say, and part of it is culture, we don't walk around and say, my name is St. Wayne. Okay, let's put it out on the sign out front. Pastor St. Wayne. Yeah, you're laughing. I would, I would be embarrassed. You're laughing. Okay, because you and I know this for a fact. We aren't always saintly. See, there's no amens on that one, but it's true. Hey, we're not. But what does God call us? What we have potential to be and what we're going to become. Isn't that grace? You know, should I tell you what it says? We believe in God. God believes in us. Isn't that grace? That's grace. That's how our God that we serve picks ordinary people. That he can use. Here's an ordinary guy, by the way. He's got a lot of growing. He's got a lot of questions. You read, you read it with me. Where all of a sudden, when the angel of the Lord is talking to him, he says, what? Well, and by the way, I need to define something here. When it says in verse 12, the angel of the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. The you in that passage is singular. The Lord is with you, Gideon. Gideon responds and says in verse 13, O my Lord, if the Lord be with, he changes it. If the Lord is with us, then where in the world is he? Now, by the way, Gideon doesn't know who he's talking to yet. Okay, that's not clear. But Gideon is challenging this guy's comment. You really think God is with us? Where's all those miracles? Where's, where's how God destroyed the Egyptians? We heard those stories. Somebody's told us that that happened. But if that's so, then where is he now? What about the opening up the river? 
What about the dividing of the sea? What about the dropping of the walls at Ai? And these Midianites have been beating the daylights out of us for the last seven years. I don't get it. Where is God? You and I would never think that way. We would never question, why are you doing what you're doing? Right? Here he is. Here he is. He's got a lot of struggles. He's got an inner... By the way, let's just... Let's, is Gideon bold enough in this regard? He says what he's thinking. Yeah, in this case he is. Because most of us will have moments where we think this, but we won't say it. <laughs> and Gideon opens his mouth and he says, I don't understand it. He just doesn't get it. By the way, now I take you back. What did God send before he calls Gideon? What did God send to the people? I said it before. He sends a prophet. The prophet tells them why they're in the pickle that they're in. Gideon doesn't get it. The prophet made it very clear, you are in trouble because you have disobeyed the Lord. Gideon's not accepting that. It's not my fault. It's not our fault. What did we do wrong? No, we didn't deserve this. Where are the miracles? You say you're going to bless me and you allow me to have problems. Gideon is struggling. Gideon is battling. He just doesn't seem to get it. And yet God says, Gideon, I want to use you. God uses some strange fellows. Aren't you glad he does? Let me take a step further. He uses somebody who has some skills. Now this is a debate in the Hebrew as far as what exactly he is referring to by commentators. I think this is the clarity of what I understand from the original language is the simplicity where he makes comment to him and he says, Gideon, I want you to do and go and do a work for me where he says in verse 14, which is a, a real, real clear under, you know, statement, very simple. The Lord said, go in this your might. Now, some will say, this your might is referring to God, talking about himself. But in the Hebrew, it says, go in your might. Go in your strength. Go in what you have. Do what you do for me with what you already possess. What he's basically telling him is he said, I'm going to go with you, but you use what skill set I've given to you. You use what I've already gifted you as far as what you're able to do. In other words, God sees in Gideon not only what he can become, but what he possesses. And it's enough for God to use him with what he possesses. Because with Gideon's skills, with Gideon's abilities, plus God, he's invincible. He's totally invincible. Kind of what Gideon is experiencing is this. Have you ever, maybe you've never had this. There are some times, and it usually happens, and I'm really glad when it happens on a Sunday morning when I'm here kind of getting things ready, and I reach into my pocket, and I find money that I forgot about. I haven't worn the suit for a month. And I reach in and go, hey, 20 bucks. Where did that come from? It's free money. It's added money. By the way, it's my money. But I forgot about it. And it's like finding money. And it's amazing what a $20 bill can do to pick you up, you know. And you reach in and you go, wow, 20 bucks for the offering plate. <laughs> I don't think that. I'm not that spiritual. <laughs> I just get excited about, hey, I found something I didn't know I had. You ever do that? Okay. That's what Gideon's doing. God is saying, reach in your pocket. Go ahead, Gideon, reach in, pull it out. Whoa. I've got this ability. I've got this skill. You're going to go with me? All right. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know you were going to go with me this way. And Gideon's so excited. Not. Watch what Gideon responds. Gideon is like the ordinary person who will give excuses before he says yes. Watch what Gideon says. Gideon says to him, he says, What? You want me to go out and beat up the Midianites? My Lord? Oh, uh, no, he said it this way. Oh, my Lord. Okay. Wherewithal shall I save Israel? Um, by the way, God said that you would lead, but I'll be with you. It's not you and you alone. Oh, my Lord. Wherewithal shall I save Israel? And he says, my family is the poorest family in Manasseh. Okay, that gives you a lot of thoughts. Remember back in Bible days, who usually supplied the weapons for the troops? See, we think modern day, we think federal government. Okay, didn't work that way. Didn't work that way. Who's the one who's providing 
the weapons. Whoever's leading the troops. No wonder nobody volunteered. Whoever leads the troops, you're responsible to get the weapons. Okay? You're going to have to... And he says, we're poor. We're barely surviving. The Midianites have cleaned out our closet. And you want me to... I don't see all that money in my pocket. And then he goes on, he says, and we're from Manasseh. That may not mean much to you, but Manasseh was like calling somebody who's not good at all in battle. You know, any country that's coming to my mind right now, it's going to be bad, the way it's going to be taken. But he's, he's saying, we're not, we're not the warriors. We're not the fighters. You don't ally with, a Manas- with Manasseh for a battle. And then he goes, and besides that, I'm the youngest in my family. In Bible days, you didn't listen to the youngest. You listened to the... Yes, I don't have it. I'm, I'm just not skilled. So what that 20 bucks I just found in my pocket, I'm putting it back, and we'll just leave it for a rainy day, God. That's his attitude. That's why I think Gideon's kind of like us. We're quicker to give excuses than we are to say yes. We're quicker to find out reasons why we shouldn't minister, why we should stop ministering than to say, I'm going to continue. That's just our nature, to get out of something. So Gideon says, if this is real, if this is what you really mean, if you really want me to do it, then give me a sign. Prove that this is really from God. You're just some kind of a guy that showed up here sitting under the tree, which, by the way, you never offered to help thresh the wheat. So you're just kind of sitting here. Prove to me that this is of God. And he asks God for a sign. Now, this is where we're going with the whole bulk of the story. Gideon asks God for a sign. Okay? And as a result, Gideon wants, this is, I want some proof. Is this really God speaking, or did you just have bad pizza the night before and you're telling me this story? And so this guy that he doesn't know yet who it is, he says, here's, here's what, give me a sign. And by the way, I should be hospitable. I need to make some food for myself. And as well, you know, why don't you stay? We'll have more time to talk. I'm going to go and get some food and we'll share it. And maybe we'll, and when we come back, you'll be able to give me a sign. You can think about it for a little bit. So Gideon then goes and prepares the, uh, the food that they can get to get and eat together. By the way, this isn't going to take like going to the microwave and put it in there for six minutes. This is going to take a while. And Gideon goes and he says he gets a kid, he gets a goat, he gets an ephah of flour. He is making a meal, not just for two guys sitting in a field. He is making Thanksgiving dinner for like 13 people. This is a big amount of food that he makes. It's very clear it's a big amount of food. By the way, this is a whole lot more, a lot of food, not just because of the amount, but because of the circumstances. They don't have a lot of food. So what he must be doing, preparing for family, preparing you know, that he's the cook and getting it all, taking it and preparing it so that he can get it cooked and he get it cooked quick and get it eaten quick before the Midianites show up. Something's going on here that we don't know all the details. So he makes all this food and then he brings it back, a portion of it, all of it, he brings it back and he says to the fellow, would you like? And the guy says, tell you what. You have slaved so hard over the oven. You have done such a wonderful job. The way that you have garnished everything, it is wonderful good poured on the ground. If your company says, put the turkey on the floor, you're not going to like that. Okay? That kind of... And the, the angel says, put it on the ground. Put it on the stone. And take the broth and pour it out. This is taking food out of my kid's mouth. This is like... Really? Gideon does it. For whatever reason, Gideon follows through. He puts it on the ground. And the angel of the Lord touches it with his staff, and the fire comes out of the stone. And the fire consumes everything. Do you remember what a moment ago Gideon was saying? Where are all the miracles? If God, you're around, where's the miracle? And if you really are representing God, why don't you give me a sign? And all of a sudden, he gets this sign. And it's a great sign. To you, it might be, well, it's just a meal. This is a great sign. This is a phenomenal sign. The suddenness of the burning coming out of a rock. Okay? Now, you might have one of those rocks in your barbecue grill. For Gideon, there wasn't gas underneath. This was a surprise. Consuming it all. And then on top of it, his visitor lights it on fire. And then the, then the pyromaniac angel disappears. All in one sim- And he goes... 
oops, I've just been talking to God. And do you read the next verse? Gideon says, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This this is, and it's not over his cooking, okay? This is over the cooking of the angel. And he's fearful and he says, oh my lands, this is, I have seen, verse 22, I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord says, peace be unto you. Stop fearing. You're not going to die. So here you got this Gideon's situation. Now Gideon knows. Now Gideon says, surely, 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 this is from God. This is true. This guy, he came from God. I'm going to deliver. This is amazing. I'm going to be the one to lead them. Little old me who doesn't have any gifts, who doesn't have many talents, who's very limited. Little me who's the youngest in the family from the tribe of Manasseh, you know, who questions God at times. You're going to use me. This is amazing. And he worships. And he, poured, he, he comes before the Lord, it says, when Gideon perceived that there was an angel of the Lord, he goes out and he, and he talks about how uh, I have seen the angel. And we read in verse 24, Gideon built an altar there, right there. Gideon stops the threshing, builds an altar, and he says, Jehovah peace, God of peace. This is amazing. I'm going to worship God. He's got this thrilling moment. But then the rest of the story as it continues, there's a whole other twist. He immediately worships God, and we already mentioned all this. He now knows it's from the Lord. Now, let me make observations, and then we'll get into the second section and wrap up. Even though he's not all he could be, God wants to use him. Even though he's not everything he could be. Even though he and others thought he had very little to offer God, God wants to use him. His family may not think he's got a whole lot, but God wants to use him. Even though he has doubts at first, God wants to use him. God wants to use him in a phenomenal way. The same applies to you and me. This is grace. This is how God blesses. But here's the twist of the story. God says, before I can use you, I'm going to ask you for a sign. Gideon asked God for a sign. Now God asks for a sign from Gideon. That's what happens. Look at the next phrase. You go into verse 25. You have the next phrase. And it came to pass the same night the Lord said unto him. You're excited, Gideon. You're all thrilled. You know that I'm, I said I can use you. But before I can use you, I need to know, are you really, really, are you really with me? Are you really going to follow through with me? Are you gonna, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of a test, Gideon. I want to see how committed you are. I'm committed to you. Are you committed to me? And God gives him this test. God says to Gideon in the next few verses, he says, God comes to him that night and he says, verse 25, take your father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, throw down the altar of Baal that your father has in the backyard, cut down the grove of trees that have been planted in there as well, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of that same rock in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt offering of wood of the grove that you cut down. Hmm. Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. And so it was because he feared his father's household, the men of the city, that, they, that he wouldn't do it by day, but he did it by night. And when the men of the city rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and their grove of trees was cut down, and the second bullock was offered on the altar that was built. And they said, who in the world did this thing to our precious God? And when they inquired and asked, they said, It's Gideon, the son of Joash. He did this thing. And the men of the city ran over to Joash and said, Bring your son out. We're going to kill him. Because he cast down the altar of Baal and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. Very simple. In the midst of Hebrew territory, in the middle of land dedicated to God, they have this temple. They have this worship center in their town center. In fact, it's in Gideon's father's backyard, and he's the caretaker. Gideon's own family is keeping this up to snuff. His own family is making sure everything's okay. And God says, I want it gone. I want you to destroy it. I want you to wipe it out. I want everybody to see that this stuff's bad, and I want them to realize by a public demonstration that others better stop worshiping. This this has just got to stop. This is not good, and you're going to be the one. Here's my test. Here's, I want you to be the one to publicly say this has got to stop. 
talking about got to stop. Did you hear about the school out in Oregon? A middle school that had a problem. The girls were going up to the mirrors in the bathroom and they would put on heavy lipstick and they would be kissing the mirrors. So the mirrors are filled with all kinds of lips kissing. And then it would lead to other kind of garbage stuff that go along with it. So the female principal of the school, she made declarations. Girls, stop kissing the mirrors and leaving your lip prints, lip prints all over it. It just continued. They mocked her. She sent notes to the teachers to read in the classroom. She made public PA system announcements. It wasn't working. So she came up with an idea. She got the oldest group of girls from the largest class that was filled with girls and took them to the restroom where there was the, the lot of the mirrors and it was happening more than any other uh, restroom. And propped the thing open. She brought all the girls in and she's talking to the girls and she brought the janitor in because she wants them to see and to sympathize with the janitor how much work this is creating and that's going to be her, her spiel. So she says to the girls, you got to stop this. This is you know, inappropriate. It's leading to other immodest conversations, things like that. you got to stop kissing the mirror and leaving your lip prints all over. The girls were so bold and brassy about it, they started arguing with her. Well, it's no big deal. Who cares? You can't tell us not to do this. This is our bathroom. You know, the normal, typical stuff. And she says, listen, this is making this person, this janitor, work so hard. And they said, well, that's his job. And she says, okay. Yeah, and they said, it can't be that hard. And she says, okay, let me show, have them show you. Janitor, show them how you're going to have to clean, how hard this is going to be. So the guy took out his boilet, toilet bowl cleaning thing, <laughs> dipped it in the toilet, walked back to the mirror with the water on it, scrubbed the mirror with those bristles, and all the girls sat there. <laughs> they never had lipstick on that mirror again. When they realized they could be touching toilet water, God is saying to Gideon, show everybody this is toilet water. These gods are that, are that contemptible. I want them to stop. Gideon is really tested here. This is a big challenge. You, you might sit here and say, well, I would do it. Put yourself in Gideon's sandals. They aren't as dedicated to Jehovah as you are. They have, he lives in a blended system that they have already been allowing false worship for a while, for several decades. His dad is in charge of it. This is no small job, by the way. This altar, if we understand the altars that have been dug up and seen, this is probably about a 20 by 20 altar that's about four feet, or a platform that's about four feet high. And on top would be your... your uh, you know, statues or your, your, you know, the altar itself. And God is saying, tear this all down. It's a big job to do at night. It takes 10 men and two bullocks. You know what I find ironic, by the way? Why does God say a bullock of seven years? Because this was the special animal in Baal worship. The bull was a special animal in Baal worship. And probably the seven years signifies seven years of uh, Midianite oppression. We don't know beyond that. So the size of the job, the opposition. He fears, he fears the situation. He fears his father's household. He also is going to get opposition from the people in the city. That they aren't going to like that. He is saying, tear down your false idols. We're going to worship God because we're Jews. And so he knows there's going to be opposition. And there is opposition. God is so pleased with what Gideon does. He does it. He tears it down. He gets the opposition. We'll talk next week about how his family comes to his, you know, and how God uses this. But God is so pleased. Look at verse 34. It gives you the, the impression how God is so pleased with him because God says, because you have done what's right, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He is blessed. And by the way, in the Old Testament, they didn't get the Spirit of the Lord like you have the Spirit of the Lord. He came for special occasions to do a special job. Gideon, you pass the test, you get the Spirit of the Lord upon you. What do we have out of this story? We have the fact that Gideon does exactly what God required of him. God said, I have, I want a sign from you. Gideon did it. He followed through. God is able to use him. Now God can use anybody. God can use anybody who's just common like you. Like me, God can do that. God wants to do that. But there has to be faithfulness. There has to be faithfulness. In fact, let, let's make some observations. Faithfulness is really important to God. This is where it starts. 
You can be a believer. You may have called upon Christ to be your Savior and you're born again. And you say, okay, I've saved. I've repented of my sin. I've called upon Christ. I know I'm born again because I did it whenever you remember the date. But are you faithful? Are you a faithful believer? God makes it very clear it is required of us that we be found faithful. This is where he starts. Are you faithful? And want to make another observation about faithfulness. It involves more than a momentary time of worship. Gideon had that. Gideon built an altar. He said, Jehovah, peace. He was singing songs in the threshing floor about God. But God wanted more. More than a worship moment that lasted for an hour and a half. Two hours. God wanted from Gideon, show it. Not just when you're in your little confines by yourself, but prove it to me. Prove that you are willing to serve me so I can use you for a big task. I'm going to give you a small one. Now, it's going to be big to you, but it's not as big as meeting the Midianites. And so faithfulness, faithfulness is basically doing what God commands us to do. Even in the simple things. In fact, let's take it a step further. It calls for putting away things that displease God. Faithfulness not only means doing what is right, but getting rid of what is wrong. Getting it out of our life. Get that thing, and especially think this through. It starts at home. Real faithfulness in public service is determined by what do you do in private. Are you serving God in private? In your home is there holiness. In your speech, in the car is there purity. In, your, in the way you respond at work, when nobody sees, are you living a righteous life? Oh, yeah, yeah, we, we would like to stand up and do things public, but God says, I want to see what you are in private. What do you like when you're, you know, it's just you and the guys, you and the girls, When it's just a small group of you, when you're by yourself, what is your life like? When it's just you and your kids, you and your siblings, is there faithfulness? It begins at what what do you like at home? How do you honor God at home? Can Can I throw this out? Being faithful doesn't mean you won't have any fears or apprehensions. Doesn't mean you'll have this bravado that means you won't hesitate. We could go through instance after instance where you are challenged to give out the Word of God, and it's, it's kind of scary to do, to open up that Word and share it with a coworker or a classmate. And there's a little bit of hesitation because there's a little bit of apprehension. It, this one. Some of you would say, I can't teach kids. That's a fearful thing to stand before a crowd of kids. It is scary to make sure you do it right. But faithfulness doesn't mean you won't have any fears, but you're going to be faithful. Faithfulness? You're, t- you're set at, told at work, hey, let's do a business deal here that is a little bit shady and dishonest. Let's, let's do this thing. And you have to, and, and it causes you a loss of a night's sleep because you say, I got to go in tomorrow and I got to say no and I might lose my job. Faithfulness is, is all of a sudden saying, I'm going to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, which is the first step for a believer. It's commanded, Acts chapter tw- 10. Clearly commanded in the New Testament, you proclaim your faith. But it's a fearful thing to get into this tank. Being faithful doesn't mean you you won't have any apprehensions. You got to go and talk to a family member. You got to go talk to a friend. And you got to confront them about something that is wrong. But you know you've got to do it. You got a little bit of apprehension, a little bit of fear. It's uh, some intimidation. Your classmates say, let's go out and let's do a little bit of drinking. Let's do some carousing and carrying on. And you got to say to them, no. This would dishonor the Lord. I'm not going to do that. And there's an apprehension. There's a little bit of that struggle that says, okay, I'm a little bit hesitant because I might lose my friends. But it's what does God want? Talk about fearful things. Sitting down with your family and saying to your kids, we've got to stop some of the things that we've been doing. We've got to get rid of this worship center that's in our home where we're not honoring the Lord the way we we should be. We haven't been putting God first. We've kind of drifted into worldliness, and we've got to make some changes. And you, as the head of the home, as mom there, dad there, you're a little bit apprehensive because you're not sure how the kids are going to respond when you say, listen, we're going to stop some of the things that have been going on. We're going to stop watching certain programs that aren't as pure as what God wants us to be pure. We're going to start different practices like worshiping the way he wants us to worship on a regular basis. And we're going to take, start doing some things different because faithfulness is starting at home where we as a family put God first. That's a fearful thing. 
as the head of the house and trying to go that direction, know you're going to get some opposition. But that's faithfulness. And God uses people who are faithful. Normal people, common people. But as long as they're faithful. As long as they do those little steps. If you're born again, God wants to use you. He wants to make and impact the world around you. He wants to make a difference. You may not be everything you're going to become, but God wants to use you. It starts by being faithful in the little things, the little areas of your life, of your family, of your home. And then God will move you into greater areas and a more public area where you can make more of an impact, see people saved, families change, relatives brought to Christ. It all starts with being faithful in the little areas. 1885, May. Young man comes to a church in Boston and he asks them to join into the church. Now some of you think that we do stuff weird for joining a church. Back then in those days, here's what you did. You met with a committee of the deacons, leaders of the church, and they would interview you. The interview could last for hours. They want to know if you're truly born again. They want to know if you really want to serve God. Then they would interrogate, I mean, they would examine your doctrinal understanding. They'd ask you theological questions. And they would ask you your understanding. They want to know if you understood the Bible. And so they're interviewing this one young man who really wants to join the church. He's recently got saved. He's got a zeal. He shows that he's saved, but they kind of, the way he said it, they wondered. But he, you know, he was born again. He has a real zeal, but boy, they said he was not sharp at all. He didn't know Bible. He couldn't answer questions. So the committee decided, and they told the young man, tell you what, we will wait one year. In this next year, we would like you to sit under the teaching of this one of our board members, who's a teacher, he has a men's class. We want you to sit underneath him. He's going to mentor you. He's going to teach you. And next year, you come back, and we'll see if you've improved in your knowledge and in your understanding of the Bible, and if so, we'll let you become a member then. He does it. Year goes by. They meet with him. He did such a lousy job. But they said, well, let him do it just by the skin of his teeth. In fact, the mentor wrote this in their church minutes. I can truly say that I've seen few persons whose minds were spiritually dimmer than his when he came into my Sunday school class. I think the committee of the church had seldom met an applicant for membership who seemed less likely to become a Christian of clear and decided views of the gospel truths and even more unlikely to fill any space of public or extended usefulness in the church. In other words, he didn't have much to offer. And yet, it's amazing what God can do with somebody who doesn't have much to offer. If you don't know his story, he is one of America's greatest preachers and used of God. The reason he's used, this is his motto. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I'm going to be that man. God uses faithful individuals. Is that you?